Welcome back to The Fray. We're about to begin part two of our podcast series on Socrates called The Alpha Human. We're going to start examining Socrates' philosophy. This is episode one. So if you haven't listened to part one to get all the historical background on Socrates and ancient Athens, I do encourage you. If you want to just pick up where Socrates starts philosophizing, I welcome you. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did creating. And welcome as you join me as we enter the fray. I find philosophy harder than history to talk about, especially in a way that satisfies me. In the first part, I simply traced the arc of history. In this second part, I will need to draw my own pictures. That's harder to do. I started and stopped many times in beginning the examination of Socrates' philosophy. I was having trouble due to the fact of not knowing where to begin. After some reflection, I began to realize that the main issue surrounds the questions, what is philosophy and when did philosophy start? In order to present Socrates as the father of Western philosophy and our alpha human, I would have to contend with all that came before him. What about earlier cultures such as Judaic, Persian, and Hindu that had fully developed societies and religions? How does this factor into Socrates and his place in philosophic history? Was there fully formed natural and moral philosophy happening elsewhere in the world? Could Socrates have come in contact with it? All of these questions were careening through my mind, and it took me toward my bookshelf and the wondrous world of the internet. I spent some time edifying myself so I could continue in good conscience. Let's start with, to the best of my ability, I think this is Google's definition of philosophy. The study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, especially when considered as an academic discipline. Just these few words do a good job at helping us discern the differences between our modern definition and what the ancient Greeks were doing. The second part, where it is considered an academic discipline, well, I can't think of a statement more diametrically opposed to Socrates' core belief and reason for philosophizing. Socrates most certainly believed that examining the fundamentals was of the utmost practical use. It was the only way to live a virtuous and just life. The other thing that this definition leaves out is the natural world. It is a modern definition of philosophy as it keeps the scope of inquiry limited to knowledge, reality, and existence. All questions concerning the material world have been passed on to science. That certainly was not the case in Socrates' time. In fact, for the most part, almost all of philosophizing was concentrated on the physical world. The three topics listed in the definition, knowledge, reality, and existence, were rarely, if ever, discussed. That is, until people like Socrates started asking questions. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Was this study of the fundamentals going on elsewhere in the world prior to the ancient Greeks? The farthest back I could find reliable information was on the Hindus of India. They are credited with having Hindu philosophers whose genesis dates back to before 1000 BC, though it didn't appear to become popular until around 600 BC. Now, I'm on record for saying I'm very uneducated when it comes to other philosophical traditions. Hindu thought is no exception. That being said, the little info I have been able to review 
seems to be much more of the religious sort of thinking versus what can be viewed as philosophy. In that way, it is not too different from early Judaic, Christian, or Islamic thought. Early religions seem to be a confluence of piety and instruction. Take the case of Ezra and the Torah. According to Paul Johnson in his biography of Socrates, he states that the original five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah, which is now translated to mean the law, was in Ezra's time, around 500 BC, known for, quote, instruction, teaching, and guidance, unquote. Now let's take a look at some of the early Hindu thought. Uh, this is from Daniel Borston's book, The Creators. Quote, the Brahmins, the sacred priestly texts say, the eye is the truth. If two persons come disputing with each other, we should believe him who said, I have seen it, not him who has said, I have heard it, unquote. That sounds a lot like instruction, teaching, and guidance. If we turn to the other even more ancient than the ancient Greek philosophical tradition, the one coming out of the Middle East, there is also a claim to philosophical heritage that dates back before 1000 BC. At least the founder of the religion lived that long ago. I'm talking about Zoroaster, who was thought to have lived anywhere between 1500 BC to 500 BC. He is credited with coming up with monotheism, establishing the world's first religion, heaven and hell, free will, also being the family religion of Freddie Mercury, which I learned from watching the most recent Queen movie. This certainly does sound promising, but we've absolutely no idea when this guy actually lived. We do know that the religion and teachings he espoused doesn't appear in history until right about the time the Greeks were digging into their version of examining the fundamentals. That led me to a connection. If I ignore the incomplete info, like not knowing when Zoroaster lived, and concentrate on what is known, something stands out. For instance, Zoroasterism, the religion founded on his teaching, enters history 6th century BC. Hinduism becomes full-fledged religion around 600 BC. Judaism, codified by Ezra in the Pentateuch in 550 BC. Regardless of what the backstories are for these systems of thought, they all entered into history within 250 to 300 years of each other. It gets even more apparent when you include a few more cultures. Thales, first known Greek philosopher, 580 BC. Buddha, born between 560 and 480 BC. Confucius, born 551 BC. Socrates, born 470 BC. So roughly in a 330-year span, out of thousands and thousands of possible time spans to choose from, and humans have been around for a long time, but in that short time frame, a little over three centuries, the entire world decided to start thinking. If you are not impressed by this, then consider that since the start of the Industrial Revolution, it has been only 340 years. Now, we routinely marvel at our progress. We went to the moon, we invented the internet, we split the atom. But really, when you stack up our 340 years against the ancient 330 years we just laid out, which one is more impressive? When you consider the advantages that the Industrial Revolution has over anything that is 2,500 years old, it is mind-boggling that similar ideas were popping up all over the known world without the infrastructure we would normally believe would be essential. Put it this way, if you were starting a groupthink movement, whether it's political, religious, whatever, would you choose our modern world? Hell, even the original world of the 1760s where the Industrial Revolution got its start, or would you choose the world of 500 BC? where limitations in transportation and communication, not to mention diplomacy, made interaction between cultures difficult and in many cases, dangerous. Kind of makes you rethink the word progress, doesn't it? 
With no practical advantages, you could stack up the accomplishments of the ancient 330-year time span with any span in human history. Many conclusions can be drawn from this. For instance, if you were to put in the major beliefs of each of these modes of thought, you could track the evolution of humanity becoming conscious of their consciousness. Now, in reality, it is an evolution that is still ongoing. It sure seems like there was something in the water back then, though. Most of these movements had little interaction with each other, but nonetheless, you can track a common vein of self-knowledge, self-improvement, and the expansion of humanity's humanity. Another interesting facet of this list is the fact in almost all cases, there was a couple centuries delay from the time of the person and the time of the religion. This is not a hard and fast rule, but check it out. Zoroasterism. Zoroaster was born as early as 1500 BC. Religion hits the books in the early 6th century BC. Hinduism. No specific founder, but schools began to form between 1100 and 1000 BC, becomes full-fledged religion around 600 BC. Judaism. Moses dates back to 1200 BC. Now, I know that this is more of a chronological fact than it is a fact that determines who founded Judaism. However, Ezra went a long way to formalizing the faith in the Pentateuch in or around 550 BC when he returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Confucianism, founder was born in 551 BC, becomes the official state religion 180 BC. Buddhism, founder born in 560 to 480 BC, becomes official state religion around 250 BC. Philosophy. Thales, the first known Greek philosopher, 580 BC. Plato opens his Academy, 387 BC. First off, what is it with all the gaps in the first place? Can it be explained away by the duration that is necessary for an idea to spread? Confucianism seems to contradict that a bit, as China was a very densely populated and relatively educated population at his time. It still took centuries for the formal ideas of Confucianism to solidify into a state-sponsored quasi-religion. Each gap exemplifies the need for others to interpret the meaning of the founder. In each and every case listed above, someone else made the teachings of the founder popular. How much change must we assume happened during the prolonged game of telephone that everyone was playing with their fundamental studies? The gap between the founding and the formalized practice of the mode of thought also shrinks each time. It is understood that there is incremental change that is occurring all the time for each example. The learning, assimilating, and disseminating of the nuts and bolts of the concepts involved in explaining the nature of knowledge, existence, and reality sped up as time passed. A lot of this can be explained by the fact as time progressed, the world became more populous. More people means more communication. Literacy also was hitting the scene, which must have attributed some efficiency to the process. Much of the basic infrastructure to help pass on ideas was not in place when the founders of each mode of thought was alive. That makes sense. The ancient Greeks gave us a ton of information concerning this process. They, and us, benefit from their proximity to us in time, as well as our fetish with the classics. We know a lot of what happened during their gap. As stated above, Thales, the first known Greek philosopher, started doing his thing around 550 BC. He started a mode of thought that was not concerned with anything in the Google definition of philosophy. Knowledge, existence, or reality concerned him and his fellow thinkers. Never concerned him or his fellow thinkers, now dubbed the pre-Socratics. They set the rules which future philosophers would follow. People such as Socrates, who would examine a wholly different area of nature, human nature. But he would not do so to justify his own belief system, 
but to get to the truth about the fundamentals of what it meant to be not just a human being, but a good human being. Eventually, Socrates' teachings, like that of Buddha and Confucius, would be disseminated by acolytes and followers after his death. Using the very symbol of the original founder to propagate the acolytes and followers' own theories. We know this happened explicitly in Greece because we have what is called the Socrates problem. That is the problem of not knowing where the thoughts of Socrates the man end and the Socrates the mouthpiece of Plato begins. We will be focusing on the Socrates problem soon enough, but it is enough to know that the gap provides the opportunity for co-opting an idyllic personages like Socrates or Buddha or Confucius to further your own agenda. It is hard to imagine this not happening in Judaism or Zoroasterism or Buddhism or Confucianism and all the future religions of the world, a more malignant, despicable version of the telephone game. The fact that all these modes of thought have gaps and that the gaps are similar in duration and that the pace of adoption speeds up as time progresses strongly suggests an evolutionary process that is, like most evolutionary processes, universal to whatever exists in the environment that is evolving. All around the world, humanity was progressing through an evolutionary shift in self-awareness. Why am I here? What kind of person should I be? What happens when I die? Most of the world dealt with these anxiety-ridden questions by retreating behind the metaphysical. Only one group that we know of thought differently. They were the pre-Socratics. Thales and his fellow seekers were looking for answers to the fundamentals of nature as a whole, the natural world and conclusions that are drawn through observation and debate. There were no real rules to this practice other than the validity of your own argument. Your observations either are or are not accurate based on your ability to make your argument for them. This is very different than all the other modes of thought we listed along with philosophy. In fact, it is probably easier if I just start calling these modes of thought religion and philosophy respectively at this point. That is basically what I did on the list anyway, which I guess answers one of the original questions I started this episode with, is what is philosophy and when did it start? I believe it started with Thales, and his merry band of pre-Socratics. My choice then begs the question, is religion philosophy? I mean, to be semantical, they are different words for a reason. Is it that surprising that I find them independent disciplines? I have no problem crediting religion and those who started them as being seekers looking to find humanity's place in the cosmos. That desire to understand their world, and just as importantly themselves, is very much part of philosophy as well. One thing that the pre-Socratics shared with their religious counterparts was a lack of practical science. To put it another way, the pre-Socratics rarely experimented on anything. Their discussions were almost scientific in nature as they included observation and peer review. Almost exclusively, they drew their conclusions from what was naturally occurring in nature. If they saw a dying man on the battlefield, they would observe his innards through the hole in his guts, but they would never cut open a corpse to examine it. This type of timidity was also exhibited in most early religions. Call it sensory overload, piety, lack of curiosity, or just one of the times when humans just missed the right answer. In any event, the ancient purveyors of deep thinking were not inclined to replicate their observations. Now, on the other hand, the pre-Socratics were one of the only early thinkers that stopped short of developing supernatural answers to these questions. They continued to discuss and argue hypothetical, logical extensions, and instead of God, they came up with atoms. For me, that is the greatest distinction between what can be defined as religion and what can be defined as philosophy. 
When the line between what can be known and not known, the pre-Socratics stopped short of manifesting something metaphysical. Why was that? What conditions allowed the pre-Socratics to search for answers instead of searching for someone to give them answers? For me, that is another big distinction between the two modes of thought. Religion is designed to give answers, like the oracles of old, whereas philosophy is designed to help you ask better questions. Now, while most Greeks had their home and hearth gods, and the state had the Olympians, the pre-Socratics eschewed all supernatural answers to their questions. They were not so much active atheists, but passive agnostics, who simply didn't acknowledge any supernatural influence. Their search for answers was also always a group affair where ideas were freely stated and debated. And in fact, many ways, the orthodoxy of the Greeks was one of open discussion, disagreement, and resolution. Recall the words of Pericles in his funeral speech. Quote, We differ in regarding the man who holds aloof from public life not as quiet, but as useless. We decide or debate carefully and in person all matters of policy, holding not that words and deeds go ill together, but acts are foredoomed to failure when undertaken undiscussed. Unquote. The Greeks were the first to emancipate the human mind from the anxiety of not being able to find the answer. They, the pre-Socratics and the others that followed, including Socrates, believed that an unexamined fill-in-the-blank is not worth anything. For the pre-Socratics, it was an unexamined natural world. For Socrates, it was an unexamined life. In either case, they were not going to let the buck stop with something supernatural. Now, in Socrates' case, he surely hoped it did. He said so himself. But he was not able to prove it, so he left it at that. And he was able to leave it at that. For some reason, he didn't compel anyone else to believe what he believed, namely that God spoke to him, albeit in a very specific way, in which he only received what not to do, never being told what to do. But more on that later. The pre-Socratics were somehow able to avoid the anxieties of life so that they felt comfortable with not knowing some aspects of the cosmos and man's place in it. Due to this, it seems to me that they were able to progress culturally without having to manifest a supernatural world that gave them all the inexplicable answers they could ever want. To put it another way, was the easygoing lifestyle that we laid out in part one of the series, the one that Alfred Zimmerman put this way in his book, The Greek Commonwealth, quote, life in the Greek lands is at once very hard and very easy, or rather dwellers in Greek lands are at once very hardy and very easygoing, unquote. Was it this hardy easygoingness that freed Greeks from the need for supernatural solutions? Was it because they believed in an innate egalitarianism that other cultures lacked? Well, I believe it was Professor Pre-Socratic in Greece with democracy that did it. The evidence is pretty strong. Look at Athenian immigration policy, soul laws, fair play laws, the astounding fast pace of intellectual innovation. All of it developed in a society built on an innate sense of equality. And here's the key, separation of what we would call now church and state. Back in the early 6th century BC, the Greeks who were not encumbered by a powerful state religion. Yes, Socrates was put to death for impiety, but that was a charge levied against him by an individual, not by the state or the church. The pre-Socratics were able to develop their philosophy sans supernatural influence or even any mention of it at all, and they, for the most part, were left free to espouse and propagate their message. No burning at the stake, no ripping out of tongues, no inquisitions, no genocides, just the occasional cup of hemlock. Practicing true philosophy is hard. It requires a level of discipline and commitment that most of us cannot or will not achieve. 
The modern philosophical colossus Wittgenstein, himself a remarkable bookend to our alpha human, in some ways Wittgenstein could be called the omega human, was famous for dissuading people from becoming philosophers. Anything less than true philosophy was a waste of time. True philosophy, to Wittgenstein, meant a commitment to truth that was difficult for the human mind to realize. Talented thinkers should become doctors or lawyers, was Wittgenstein's thought, leaving the philosophizing to the agents willing to sacrifice everything for the love of wisdom. If you are not willing to sacrifice everything, you are not philosophizing. It has been said that in philosophy there are two kinds of philosophers. Ones that tell you how to live, and ones that help you determine the best way to live. In some ways, I feel that this is an attempt to separate all the philosophical theologians, politicians, economists, etc., from the actual philosophers. That statement could easily read that there are two types of philosophers, ones that use philosophy to validate and enforce their viewpoints on others, and then there are an actual philosophers who seek wisdom. I think of the artisans that Socrates mentions in his Apology. Quote, At last I went to the artisans, for I was conscious that I knew nothing at all, as I may say, and I was sure that they knew many fine things. And here I was not mistaken, for they did know many things of which I was ignorant, and in this they were certainly wiser than I was. But I observed that even the good artisans fell into the same error as the poets. Because they were good workmen, they thought they also knew all sorts of high matters. And this defect in them overshadowed their wisdom." My critique is not limited to specialists like economists and theologians. It also includes much of what has been heralded as capital P philosophy throughout the years. There are plenty of examples of philosophers from Aquinas to Kant who muddy the water in some cases just fill in the whole damn pool with dirt when it comes to justifying the supernatural and their faith in it. Using the philosophical tools developed for searching for wisdom to defend something that cannot be proven and in fact has allegedly already given all the answers is some kind of complex three-dimensional irony. What any religion would need or want philosophy for puzzles me. What truths are still needing to be uncovered by someone who professes faith in the supernatural? What facts remain that would make their faith faithier? Taken to its logical conclusion, if one were to remove the mysteries from religion, there would be no more faith. Faith requires the unknown to stay unknown, the unanswered to stay unanswered. Philosophy requires that you never stop questioning the unknown, that you never stop trying to answer the unanswered. In my personal experience, and I was raised Catholic, the last thing that is wanted from individuals are questions when it comes to the religious world. And when questions are asked, the answer is not debated, just accepted. Now, I'm sure that there there are some of you who balk at this characterization of religion. You probably have asked questions and gotten answers, but in context of your religion. Is this process a philosophic one? Are you able to make counter-arguments and defend your position? A quick look back at history and we can plainly see how religion has dealt with freedom of thought. Does philosophy rip people's tongues out and burn them alive? Does philosophy conduct centuries-long holocausts and genocides? Does philosophy abdicate the natural world in order to escape to a supernatural alternate existence? The answer to all these questions is no. And why not? It is due to the fact that philosophy, unlike religion, is open, flexible, and most importantly, democratic. There is no hierarchy. No defined power structure in philosophy. No one has anything to torture, murder, and terrorize anyone about. No position to defend other than your argument. Do people kill other people in the name of philosophy? Sure. It is rumored that the ancient Pythagoreans drowned the man who discovered irrational numbers. You can make an argument that Marx and his belief system is responsible for millions of murders committed by the Soviet Union. 
I'm sure if you asked a communist, they could point to Adam Smith and his invisible hand of market forces, creating nasty, brutish, and short lives so that we could have cool sneakers. This argument fails because in all these instances, there were people in power who committed these atrocities using philosophy to keep themselves in power. Like a theologian who waxes philosophical inside the limited world of their religion, these examples are politicians or academics or cult leaders doing exactly the same thing as a theologian, only within the limited worlds of politics, economics, or their cult. They were not practicing philosophy. Thinking about something really hard and for a long time does not make you a philosopher. Coming up with an intricate system of metaphysical belief does not make you a philosopher. Presenting those thoughts and having a healthy debate on them, allowing you to hone and in some cases wholesale change your original propositions, all due to the fact that you're engaging in open discussion with a person you consider an equal is a lot closer to what it means to be a philosopher. In short, if you do not have democratization of thought, then you do not have philosophy. If you accept the answer given is the best answer due to who gives it, based on its source, not its own validity, then you do not have philosophy. So that leads us back to where I started. Though now I can, for my purposes, define philosophy narrowly as a discipline that requires debate among equals. I can also define philosophy broadly as being able to study just about anything in the natural world, including but not limited to knowledge, reality, and existence. I think it would be useful to reassess that definition of philosophy and revise it to fit how the Greeks, the inventors of the practice, would define it. The study of the fundamentals of nature requiring an argumentative discussion among equals. In the beginning, philosophy considered everything and required that it be discussed among equals. Because of this adherence to open-mindedness and inclusion, the Greeks, in the form of Athens, was able to elevate humanity to heights that even today we have trouble achieving. But it is also very important to include the second part of the definition. Open, good-faith arguing is one of the most important parts of this equation. In fact, I'm going to make the argument throughout the second part of this series that arguing was the secret to the Athenian success, but not only their success, but to ours. We as an evolved species have developed some amazingly powerful cognitive tools that other species just don't have. Reason is one of them that makes us distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom. And recent science is beginning to show us that reason works best when you are arguing. The Greeks left no issue undiscussed, and in turn they were able to construct fantastic edifices to human reason like democracy, mathematics, human rights, and morality. This is because they considered themselves, well, the citizens of Greece, not the women, not the slaves, but they considered themselves equals. There was no organized, priestly, or rabbinical class whose job it was to determine the undeterminable. It brings up a concept I talked a little bit about in part one, the concept of evolved traits. In part one, the traits that we focused in on were the needs for humans to build coalitions and how members of coalitions use signaling to confer their allegiances. This type of behavior is more commonly described as recruitment, diplomacy, propaganda, acts of violence, and in many cases, all-out war. The evolved trait that we are going to spend some time with in part two is our ability to reason. For the majority of history, reason, with a capital R, was held in high esteem as the king of all human faculties. All other attributes of the human experience could be seen reflected in the rest of the animal kingdom. Only one thing truly separated man from beast. Reason. Reason has been exalted for a reason, pardon the pun, 
It has produced unbelievable achievements the world over, too numerous to count. But it also is terribly inconsistent. Not everyone is able to use reason in the same manner. By making reason universal to all humans, but also undeniably inconsistent, we are left with a little bit of a conundrum. But before I go too much further, I wanted to give credit to all this argument talk to the book The Enigma of Reason, co-authored by researchers and cognitive scientists Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. In their book, they address this inconsistency head-on. Now, instead of paraphrasing, I'm going to go ahead and dig in to some passages from their book. So this first part here I'm going to read is from their introduction, establishing why they chose to re-examine reason, and I think it sort of sheds light on what made the Greeks so special. From the subheading titled, Reason, a Flawed Superpower, quote, With Darwin came the realization that whatever traits humans share as a species are not gifts of the gods, but outcomes of biological evolution. Reason, being such a trait, must have evolved. And why not? Hasn't natural selection produced many wondrous mechanisms? Take vision, for instance. Most animal species benefit from this amazing biological adaptation. Vision links dedicated external organs, the eyes, to specialized parts of the brain and manages to extract from patterns of retinal stimulation exquisitely precise information about the properties, location, and movement of distant objects. This is a hugely complex task, much more complex by any account than that of reason. Researchers in artificial intelligence have worked hard on modeling both reason and vision. Machine vision is still rudimentary. It comes nowhere near matching the performance of human vision. Many computer models of reasoning, on the other hand, have been claimed, somewhat optimistically, to perform even better than human reason. If vision could evolve, then why not reason? We are told that reason, even more than vision, is a general purpose faculty. Reason elevates cognition to new heights. Without reason, animal cognition is bound by instinct. Knowledge and action are drastically limited. Enhanced with reason, cognition can secure better knowledge in all domains and adjust action to novel and ambitious goals, or so the standard story goes. But wait, if reason is such a superpower, why should it, unlike vision, have evolved in only a single species? True, some outstanding adaptations are quite rare. Only a few species, such as bats, have well-developed echolocation systems. A bat emits ultrasounds that are echoed by surfaces in its environment. It uses these echoes to instantaneously identify and locate things such as obstacles or moving prey. Most other animals don't do anything of the sort. Vision and echolocation have many features in common. One narrow range of radiation, light in the case of vision, ultrasounds in the case of echolocation, provides information relevant to a wide variety of cognitive and practical goals. Why, then, is vision so common and echolocation so rare? Because in most environments, vision is much more effective. Echolocation is adaptive only in an ecological niche where vision is impossible or badly impaired. For instance, when dwelling in caves and hunting at night, as bats do. Is reason rare, arguably unique to a single species, because it is adaptive in a very special kind of ecological niche that only humans inhabit? This intriguing possibility is well worth exploring. It is incompatible, however, with the standard approach to reason, which claims that reason enhances cognition whatever the environment it operates in and whatever the task it performs. 
Understanding why only a few species have echolocation is easy. Understanding why only humans have reason is much more challenging. Think of wheels. Animals don't have wheels. Why not? After all, wheeled vehicles are much easier to construct than ones with legs or wings, just as models of reasoning seem much easier to develop than models of vision. However, artificial wheels are made separately and then added onto a vehicle, whereas biological wheels would have to grow in situ. How could a freely rotating body part either be linked to the rest of the body through nerves and blood vessels, or else function without being so linked? Viable biological solutions are not easy to conceive, and that is only part of the problem. For a complex biological adaptation to have evolved, there must have been a series of evolutionary steps, from rudimentary precursors to fully developed mechanisms, where every modification in the series has been favored, or at least not eliminated, by natural selection. The complex visual systems of insects, mollusks, or mammals, for instance, have all evolved from mere light-sensitive cells through a long series of modifications, each of which was adaptive or neutral. Presumably, a similar series of adaptive steps from non-wheeled to wheeled animals was, if not impossible, at least so improbable that it never occurred. Perhaps, then, reason is to animal cognition what wheels are to animal locomotion, an extremely improbable evolutionary outcome. Perhaps reason is so rare because it had to evolve through a series of highly improbable steps and it did so only once, only very recently in evolutionary time, and for the benefit of just one lucky species, us. The series of steps through which reason would gradually have evolved remains a mystery. Reason seems to be hardly better integrated among the more ordinary cognitive capacities of humans than are the superpowers of Spider-Man or Superman. Of course, it could be argued that reason is a graft, an add-on, a cultural contraption, invented, some have suggested, in ancient Greece, rather than a biological adaptation. But how could a species without the superpower of reason have invented reason itself? While reason has obviously benefited from various cultural enhancements, the very ability of a species to produce, evaluate, and use reasons cries out for an evolutionary explanation. Alas, what we get by way of explanation is a little more than hand-waving. The problem is even worse. The hand-waving itself seems to point in a wrong direction. Imagine, by way of comparison, that against the odds, biological wheels had evolved in one animal species. We would have no idea how this evolution had taken place. Still, if these wheels allowed the animals to move with remarkable efficiency in their natural environment, we would have a good idea why they had evolved. In other terms, we would understand their function. We might expect animal wheels, like all biological organs, to have weaknesses and to occasionally malfunction. We would not expect, though, to find some systematic flaw in this locomotion system that compromised the very performance of its function. For instance, a regular difference in size between wheels on opposite sides, making it hard for the animals to stay on course. A biological mechanism described as an ill-adapted adaptation is more likely to be a misdescribed mechanism. Reason, as standardly described, is such a case. Psychologists claim to have shown that human reason is flawed. The idea that reason does its job quite poorly has become commonplace. Experiment after experiment has convinced psychologists and philosophers that people make egregious mistakes in reasoning. And it is not just that people reason poorly, it is that they are systematically biased. The wheels of reason are off balance. Beyond this commonplace, 
Polemics have flared. Reason is flawed, but how badly? How should success or failure in reasoning be assessed? What are the mechanisms responsible? In spite of their often bitter disagreements, parties in these polemics have failed to question a basic dogma. All have taken for granted that the job of reasoning is to help individuals achieve greater knowledge and make better decisions. If you accept the dogma, then yes, it is quite puzzling that reason should fall short of being impartial, objective, and logical. It is paradoxical that, quite commonly, reasoning should fail to bring people to agree on, and even worse, that it should often exacerbate their differences. But why accept the dogma in the first place? Well, there is the weight of tradition, and, you might ask, what else could possibly be the function of reasoning? Reason, as standardly understood, is doubly enigmatic. It is not an ordinary mental mechanism, but a cognitive superpower that evolution, now it used to be God's, has bestowed only on us humans. As if they were not enigmatic enough, the superpower turns out to be flawed. It keeps leading people astray. Reason, a flawed superpower. Really? Our goal is to resolve this double enigma. We will show how reason fits into individual minds, in social interactions, and in human evolution. To do so, we challenge the tradition, reject the dogma, and rethink both the mechanisms of reason and its function. End quote. That does a great job of summing up their position on reason. I have to say they make a compelling case. They go on to describe the different facets that we think are flaws in reasoning, such as biases, something called the my side bias, where you always see your point of view. The stuff basically we've been seeing on social media where we scratch our heads and say, why do they keep doubling down? Well, reason is helping them do that. For a long time, I've used the phrase nailing a nail into a wall with a wrench as an example of something that works even though you're not using the correct tool for the job. Another example of that from history is sailing great distances before the advent of longitude and latitude. People still got to where they were going, just not very consistently, just like the way we use reason. So what is the answer? So let's go ahead and take a look at what Mr. Mercier and Mr. Sperber have to say about that. And I'm going to jump ahead to, towards near the end of the book where they give an explanation of how they see reasoning working well. And here's a hint, it's arguing. From their book, The Enigma of Reason, under the heading, Argumentation is Underrated, quote, we have emphasized the bad sides of reason those that have given rise to an enigma in the first place. For instance, reason is biased. Reason is lazy. Reason makes us believe crazy ideas and do stupid things. If we put reason in an evolutionary and interactivist perspective, however, these traits make sense. A my-side bias is useful to convince others. Laziness is cost-effective in a back-and-forth argument. Reason may lead to crazy ideas when it is used outside of a proper argumentative context. We have also repeatedly stressed that all of this is for the best. In the right context, these features of reason should turn into efficient ways to divide cognitive labor. Crucially, this defense of argumentative reasoning depends on how people evaluate others' reasons. They have to be sensitive to what the philosopher Jürgen Habermas has called, quote, the forceless force of the better argument, unquote. They have to be able to reject weak arguments while accepting strong enough ones, even if that means completely changing their minds. We presented evidence that people are good at evaluating others' arguments, but these experiments still targeted solitary reasoners provided with a single argument to evaluate, a far cry 
from the back and forth of an argumentative exchange. It is now time to make good on our promise and to show that in the right interactive context, reason works. It allows people to change each other's minds so they end up endorsing better beliefs and making better decisions. Now, just to step away for a second, they're going to describe a specific test called the Wasson four-card selection task. That's just a psychological test that tests reasoning. Four cards, you're shown two cards, and then you have to guess what the other two cards are going to be when you turn them over. There is clues there. Anyway, they, this test has been, has been administered hundreds of thousands of times, and they're going to give you an interesting example of when someone started asking questions about how this test was performed. So back to the quote. For more than 20 years, Dave Moshman, psychologist and educational researcher who asked his students to solve the Wasson four-card selection task individually and then in small groups. While individual performance was its usual low, around 15% correct, something extraordinary was happening in the course of group discussions. More than half the groups were getting it right. When Moshman teamed with Molly Gale to conduct a controlled version of this informal experiment, groups reached 80% of correct answers. It may be difficult for someone who hasn't read article after article showing pitiful performance on the Wasson four-card selection task to realize just how staggering this result is. No sample of participants ever reached anywhere close to 80% correct answers on the standard version of the task. Students at the best American universities barely reach 20 or 25% of correct answers when they are solving the task on their own. Participants paid to get it right still failed abysmally. What Moshman and Gale had achieved is the equivalent of getting sprinters to run a 100-meter race in five seconds by making them run together. You'd think that such an extraordinary result would get the attention of psychologists. Not at all. It went completely neglected. Perhaps no one really knew what to do with it. The only researchers who paid attention to Moshman and Gale's results were those whose theories had been compromised. They asked for replications. Not unfairly, given the suspicious tendency of many psychological experiments not to replicate. While not always as dramatic as in the original experiment, the improved performance with group discussion has proven very robust. It also works very well with other tasks, such as the Paul and Linda problem. Try the experiment with friends, colleagues, or students. It works unfailingly. Skeptical researchers also suggested that argumentation had little to do with the improvement in performance. Rather than paying attention to the content of each other's arguments, group members, they suggested, rely on superficial attributes to decide which answer to adopt. Perhaps people simply follow the most confident group member. This alternative explanation makes some sense. Confidence can be important in determining the outcome of group discussions, for better or worse. This lower-level interpretation, however, offers a very poor description of what happens when groups discuss a reasoning task. Looking at the transcripts, it is apparent that those whose views prevail are not just saying, I know that's for a fact, with a confident tone. They're putting forward one argument after the other. We also know that a single participant with the correct answer can convince a group that unanimously embraces the wrong answer, even if she is initially less confident than the others in the group. Now, I want to stop there. This is me again, not the quote. I want to stop there to mention that last summer, I hosted a couple of argument clubs. I did so after reading this book. I took their advice and used one of the psychological tests, the Paul and Linda problem that the authors just referenced. There was a group of about 15 or so people presented with the problem, 
and just as described in the book, there were some who got the answer right away and others who need convincing. Now, the most fascinating part is how closely the experience followed the book's description. When the people were presenting their side of the argument, they most certainly didn't just fold their arms and say, I'm right, this is the answer. They and the others who had just got the correct answer would rapid-fire produce reasons, metaphors, examples, hypotheticals, drawing examples on whiteboards. We were seeing reasoning working in real time. When you argue, you devote all of your concentration to convincing someone of your position. You do this by using reasons that are created by your reason. Now let's pick up the authors here. Skepticism toward group efficiency is not entirely misplaced. When argumentation is not involved, group performance is disappointing. A hundred years ago, the agronomical researcher Maximilian Ringelmann noticed a weird pattern. Tractors, horses, and humans seem to be less efficient when performing a task jointly. For instance, people push less hard to move a cart when they were doing it together. Since the decrease in performance held for machines and animals as well as humans, Ringelman assigned most of the blame to coordination problems. The strength is not applied simultaneously, which decreases the total strength exerted in any given time. However, observing prisoners powering a flour mill, he also noted that motivation could be an important factor for humans. Quote, the result was mediocre because they, after only a little while, each man, trusting in his neighbor to furnish the desired effort, contented himself by merely following the movement of the crank and sometimes even letting himself be carried along by it, unquote. Several decades later, social psychologists would show that such motivational factors are often the main culprits for the group underperformance, labeling this phenomenon social loafing. Groups can have disappointing performance not only when pooling physical force, but also on a variety of cognitive problems. Brainstorming is a typical example. By and large, group brainstorming doesn't work. In a typical brainstorming session, participants are told not to voice their criticisms so that they feel free to suggest even wild ideas. This doesn't work. A brainstorming group typically generates fewer and worse ideas than if the ideas of each individual working in isolation had been gathered. By contrast, telling people that most studies suggest that you should debate and even criticize each other's ideas allows them to produce more ideas. That group performance should be disappointing in many domains only makes the success of argumentation even more remarkable. When people argue, even about seemingly dull mathematical or logical tasks, there is no social loafing or cognitive disruption. Instead, their motivation is increased by the dialogical context. They responded to each other's arguments and build on them. For a wide variety of tasks, argumentation allows people to reach better answers. Unquote. Better answers. That's the whole point. Just try and recall the last time you got into an actual argument and how you felt physically. For me, I can feel my face get red and a dull roar begins in my head as I focus on convincing my opponent of their error. Don't take my word for it. The Enigma of Reason has a great quote from the French philosopher Montaigne, written around 1500 AD. The French philosopher says, quote, The study of books is a languishing and feeble motion that heats not whereas conversation teaches and exercises at once. If I converse with a strong mind and a rough disputant, he presses upon my flanks and pricks me right and left. His imaginations stir up mine. Jealousy, glory, and contention stimulate and raise me up to something above myself. And acquiescence is a quality altogether tedious in discourse. <sighs> now I feel better. 
I've assuaged myself I have not erred too much in starting with Socrates and his fellow pre-Socratics. For some reason, they were able to achieve a feat no other culture had been close to achieving, that of avoiding the vacuous decay of throwing all your eggs in the religion basket. So maybe this is a little bit of the answer as to why democracy only takes hold rarely. It has to start with a disavowal or at least a firm barrier between religion and other facets of the process. Politics, economics, and philosophy, just to name a few, all have to be free to exchange ideas without the oversight of something or someone supernatural and unknowable. So in this part of the series, part two, we will be investigating the beginning of philosophy. In doing so, we will not only be learning specifically about Socrates and his beliefs, but also solidify the argument that the Greeks were the one of the only cultures to actually utilize human reasoning correctly. They argued and counter-argued until they reached greater heights collectively without ever relinquishing their humanity to a supernatural belief system. To put it another way, the Greeks were able to achieve so much in such a short amount of time because they argued, without constraints or oversight. They stand alone amongst all of humanity for using the evolved trait of reason correctly. It's like finding a culture that used their thumb correctly after thousands of years of like, holding sticks wrong and we run into someone that uses the stick right because they put their thumb the right way. And by way of making my case off the top of my head, here's what I came up with as far as examples when healthy debate amongst equals is fostered. It produces results that far exceed the sum of its parts. We can start with ancient Athens. This is well-covered ground for us. Democracy, mathematics, human rights, civil rights, so much more. They did this whilst arguing as equals. The Roman Republic. Before it was an empire, Rome was a republic. Not too dissimilar from ours. For over 300 years, in fact. They had almost all the trappings of Athens, save for the fact that the pool of powerful citizens was much more limited in Rome. This republic was created and sustained by arguing amongst those equals. The Council of Nicaea, around 420 AD, a large contingent of Christian intellectual and political elites converged on Nicaea to work out the future of Christianity. What was produced has lasted for 1,600 years. Those doing the arguing were all considered equals, for the most part. Magna Carta, around 1200 AD, group of landed gentry and merchants extract basic fair play laws from the English king, lay the groundwork for democracy for future generations. Those doing the arguing were considered equals, save for the king, of course. And the United States. While not perfect, the U.S. Constitution is a testament to allowing argument to drive a process. How else were these slaveholding, greedy capitalists able to come up with so many good ideas, along with those really bad ones? Because they debated for months before creating the final document. Those doing the arguing were all considered equals. So arguing took the back seat to acquiescence. 2,600 years later, Thomas Jefferson wrote this, and I'd like to thank the book The Enigma of Reason one more time for this quote. Quote, Truth is great and will prevail if left to herself, that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition, disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate, error ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them.